Well, here we are, the end of January. How a week or a month goes by so quickly. And I've been talking to a number of people, and I place myself on this camp, uh, that when you get back to work, you're going, I don't know if I'm actually at work. I'd rather be at the beach or at home doing what I wanted to do or have coffees or read or whatever it might be. And so as I've been traveling around, I've taken a lot of note on what people have on their boats, for example. And I've noticed boats are called the boardroom or at work. And I saw this boat labeled at work, and I thought that sounds like something Pastor Sheridan would have. I could phone him up and, where are you? I'm at work. Oh, really? What are you doing? Oh, well, I'm preparing, I'm planning. That's code language for putting bait on hooks. Do you have any new exciting plans for the new year? Well, not really, just the old methods. They always work well. It's code language for putting the line down. So getting back into work, and I guess two or three weeks or so, we're back into the groove, which is good, and doing what we've been doing and looking at the year ahead. But there's something I want to encourage us with as a church, is to, to go to a new place, a new platform, if you will, of understanding what the Bible says about work. It is so easy to get absorbed into the world's culture and attitudes to work. And I think at this time of the year, it's a really good question to ask, what does the Bible say about work? Good question, isn't it? Really good question. A couple of people are convinced. Who thinks it's a good question? I think you still want to be on holiday. You've got that holiday groove. Really have, haven't you? I know what it's like. But anyway, we're going to look at work anyway. I'll tell you what, I won't go too long. How's that? You're all right with that? Yep. So Christianity, particularly over the last 500 years or so, has predominantly affected the way we work through the Protestant work ethic. And my dad used to remind me a lot of this when I was young. He was the youngest child of his family of nine children, and he married quite late. And so, um, of course, he grew up in a farm, and he had great delight telling me as a teenager that uh, he used to get up at 4.30 in the morning, milk the cows, and chop the wood, and then go to school, which was, of course, you know, a, a nice way of saying, you should be doing more work, Raymond. <laughs> and I used to think I did a lot of work. And, uh, but it didn't take too long, and my dad um, used to say that he and others in his classroom would fall asleep during class. And I said to him, Dad, that sounds a bit like child labor. And of course, the world has seen quite a bit in this area of child labor. In March 1832, Michael Sadler introduced a bill to the House of Commons in Britain limiting the, those that were uh, under 18 years of age to work only 10 hours a day. How would you like that if you're under 18 working 10 hours a day? What do you reckon, Jay? And uh, it didn't get passed. And so there was an agreement reached that uh, Michael Sadler would go and interview children that were employed in child labor. For example, in the coal mines, in the mills, and so on and so forth. And he interviewed a girl by the name of Elizabeth Bentley, um, who said it was very difficult for children to arrive at the factory on time. I worked from five in the morning, she says, to nine at night. How's that? Five in the morning to nine at night. 
16 hours a day. I lived two miles from the mill. We had no clock. And if I arrived late, even one minute late, I would be courted. What she meant was I would have a quarter of an hour deducted from my pay wages and then another quarter, so she would lose half an hour's wages. And here's the thing, she was paid a penny an hour, and if she was late for work, she was paid half a penny. Wow. I think we're doing pretty well today in our world, don't you? Uh, around that time, a little bit later, um, a British author by the name of Dorothy Sayers wrote um, in an essay called Why Work, she says couple of important things. Society as a whole, she says, and individuals in particular are dying because they do not have the revolutionally biblical framework nor understanding of work. She says in the Bible there is a view of work that is revolutionary. She goes on to say that modern's view of work is just working for money, not of a sense of desire or calling. And as I mentioned, I covered a little bit of this in October last year of all days on Labor Day. Who remembers that? Okay, so I'm going to touch a couple of things there and weave into a few other things. So in Labor Day last year, the, um, I reported on a research done by the London School of Business that said in the UK, listen to this, people aged 18 to 24, 68% of them said they wanted to leave their jobs. Don't put your hand up. Who wants to leave their job this year? I know there's one or two of us. Um, The good news, if you're 55 or over, it's only 19%. And so there is this this huge desire or dissatisfaction that people dislike or even hate their work. And I want to encourage us this morning, as we go into 2018, is to really understand what the Bible says about work and how God is interested in my work, and with a biblical perspective, I can change the world around me by the way that I work. Sound a good thing to do? i tell you who was having a real bad day with this was the Israelites. And if we go back into uh, the story of, of Moses uh, in Exodus 4, but before we get there, I thought you'd be interested in this. I did a little bit of research on one of the most stressful jobs in the world in 2017. Who wants to know what the most stressful job in the world is? The number one job. The number one job is a pastor. No, I'm joking. (laughs) I heard that last time. The most stressful job in the world is to be enlisted in the military, firing at people and being fired at by others. The second most stressful is to be a firefighter, the third to be an airline pilot, the fourth to be a police officer, the fifth, I thought this was interesting, to be an event coordinator, and it goes on. Number nine is to be a taxi driver, the ninth most um, stressful job in the world in 2017. Do you want to know the least stressful? Okay, here is the least stressful. The seventh least stressful is to be a jeweler. If you're a jeweler this morning, you're the seventh least stressful. The fifth least stressful is a university professor. (laughs) And and the third least stressful is to be a hairstylist. And I would imagine if if that was with Sheridan, that would be okay. (laughs) Sorry, Sheridan. 
And uh, the, the least of all, the, the least stressful job is to be an ultrasound technician. So there you go. The most to the least stressful. Anyway, in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel were not having a stressless day. They were full of stress. And in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, we read, And so the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithron and Ramsey as supply centers for the kings. And uh, here is the situation. The Israelites are there. They're growing in population. The Egyptian political machine is getting very concerned that this people group is growing larger and larger and larger. And they decide we better take control of this. Otherwise, they're going to overthrow and overgrow Egypt. And so they take this approach. We're going to make them slaves. And we're going to drive them hard. And we're going to work them as hard as we can. And uh, not only we do see it in Israel. You've seen it all through history. Uh, even in the, the Industrial Revolution, as I read before about child labor, where people are put to hard labor. And <clears throat> it's really, really interesting as we go through the book of um, Exodus that these people are having a very, very difficult time. And uh, as you know, God leads them out through the, the, um, <clears throat> the Red Sea, and they come into the Promised Land, and things are looking good. Coming into a new year, and things are looking good. And that's where we are right at the moment. We're on a new year. Things are looking great. We're standing at this promised land. And guess what? Can I ask you a question? Has anybody complained this year? Complained. Has anybody complained? Yeah. Okay, let me ask it. Has anybody not complained? Nari hasn't complained. So we're all like the Israelites. We've complained. It's been very hot, hasn't it? We've complained at drivers. We've complained that this is too expensive and that's too expensive. We've complained. We have a lot in common with the Israelites because they were complaining too. Here's their complaint. I don't know if ours is in the same league, but this is what they said in Exodus 14, verse 11. And they said to Moses, could you just imagine Moses with this, with people coming up to him and saying this? Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? It's a pretty tough comment. Why did you bring us out? Why is it so hot? Why aren't I paid enough? Why isn't there more work? Why do I have too much work? It didn't say that in the scripture, by the way. Um, It goes on and says, Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? And this is where they were treated so harshly. Why didn't you tell us this would happen while we're still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. And so they've had a pretty tough day in the office. And of course, we can find ourselves in an environment where it's easy to complain too. Complain about a boss, complain about our work colleagues, complaining about the staff, complaining this should be done or that should be done. Why is this done? Why is that not done? I worked with a guy who used to complain that we're always having too much fun. See, there's too much fun. And I worked with another guy who said, why do we always have so many tools? We seem to have two or three. My, one of my bosses liked having a lot of tools, a lot of spanners. So we're used to the environment of complaining, and Moses was his environment. But here's the thing, it's... Our environments are created by our words. And this is what Moses is saying. 
and this is what God knows so well, is that our environments are voice activated. Our environments are voice activated. And if you fill the environment with complaint, you activate chaos. And that's the reality where Moses was finding himself with the people of Israel. And so God goes, <clears throat> Moses goes, we've got all this complaint. Moses is going to God, what are you going to do about it? God says, just watch this, Moses. And Moses uh, and the people watch God perform some wonderful miracles. In Exodus 16, verse 9 to 10, And Moses said to Aaron, Announce to this entire community, Present yourself before the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole community of Israel, they looked out towards the wilderness, and there they could see the awesome glory of God in a cloud. And God appears in a cloud. Isn't that awesome? God appears in a cloud. And then they say, and rightly so, I guess, they're thirsty. And then water comes out of a rock, which is good. In Exodus 17, 6, where I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai, straight the rock and water will come gushing out. Isn't that awesome? Who noticed the nice scenery we had at the very beginning as we were singing with that lovely flow of water coming out? Did anybody see that? Yeah, it was beautiful, wasn't it? As I was watching that, I thought, I wonder if that was like for the people of Israel. I don't think there would have been all the bush around it, but there's a rock with water coming out. So there's a second miracle. And of course, God provides food, quail, meat, and bread for the Israelites. They have been provided all these resources, these miracles. And here's the, the outstanding miracle that happens. God calls the nation to come together on, before Mount Sinai, and the whole nation sees Mount Sinai. Isn't that awesome? So this is what they've been doing. They've been complaining. I haven't got this, and I haven't got that. Then God says, I'll do some miracles. I'll give you some food. I'll give you some meat. I'll give you some water. I'll show you my glory. And here's one thing I'll do that's never been done before, nor never been done since. I will come before the entire nation, and you can see me. That'll do it. That'll make you happy. No more complaining there. Moses goes, this is a good day in the office. God's turned it all on, and the people will be happy. I wish it was. Because Moses goes up to the mountain, and while he's up there after all of these miracles, guess what? They make a golden calf. They make an idol. All these miracles. And I'm sure Moses scratches his head. And God goes, what have I made here with these people? And here is something profound in this story, which you've heard me say before. In Genesis, sorry, Exodus 25, 8. This is God's answer. Here's all the complaining. Here's the miracles. And they go off and make an idol. Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live amongst them. Exodus 25, 9. You must build this tabernacle, this tent, and its furnishings exactly to the pattern I will show you. Exodus 27, 8. Build it just as you are shown on the, on the mountain. The command is simple. Get to work. Get to making stuff. Get to creating stuff. 
and things are going to change. I love that scripture that Sheridan read from John chapter 6 about Jesus performing the miracle of the bread. Isn't that so similar to the, the bread that was laid out on the ground for the Israelites to eat? Here's Jesus laying out all the bread. And the next day, they don't get it. They come, they've seen the miracle, and they're holding their hand out for more bread. And I'm sure Jesus has gone, hmm, reminds me a little bit of the people when they're in this situation here. All these miracles, and they're holding their hands out for more. And if I go, Moses goes and leaves them for five minutes, they make an idol. Jesus goes, all this handout stuff, now don't get me wrong, I love miracles. I'm all up for miracles. Who's up for miracles? We are all up for miracles. But God is going, hey, the handout stuff, you better be careful the way you receive that because it's going to stunt your growth in me if you don't understand what it's about. If you don't understand what it's about, it's going to stunt your growth. And so I want to encourage us today, church, is that we're a church who is not stunted in our growth, but understands what it is to step out and work with the Lord and grow to the full maturity He desires us to be in this city and in this nation and the nations. Isn't that a wonderful thing to do? That's what God wants us to be. And He invites us to do it. But here's the thing. It's not by going, give me another handout. As wonderful as all that stuff is. So reading in Exodus 36, verse 3, and I think this is beautiful. Moses gave them the materials donated by the people of Israel as sacred offerings for the completion of the sanctuary. The people continued to bring additional gifts each morning. Here are the people. They're giving into the, the items, the timber, the silver, the gold, all the materials required to construct this temple, this tent of meeting. People are bringing it in. So here they were complaining. Here was the show of all these provisions. And Moses, or God says, now build, build. And the people go, yeah, we're going to give into it. We're going to sow into that. And then they begin to work. And here's the thing. As the people are giving, as the people are working, guess what? There's no complaining. There's not one record of complaint. Why did you bring us out here? I'm not being paid enough. It's too noisy. There's too much fun, or whatever it might be. These people are working together in community. God is amongst them, and they are building together. Isn't that wonderful? Not one complaint. I think that's a miracle in itself. But what is happening, they're growing as a people. They've got a sense of belonging together as a people. And they're becoming partners with God and creating something for Him. I so enjoyed the uh, mucking in last October. Who, who remembers that? Wasn't that good? Do you know what I loved about it? Well, it was fun, wasn't it? Painting fences and building stuff and baking stuff. But what I loved about it most of all was the sense of God amongst us. Who knows what I mean when I say that? Wasn't that good? God amongst us. It's precious. It's something special. 
as we were doing that. We've got another mini muckin' day. Uh, I think it's on the 11th of March, so it's not far away. We're going to have a wonderful time there as well. So here's the thing. These people begin to build. These people begin to create. They give. And it's very interesting that when you're, who's ever found when they've been walking with God and things are going along with God, you can easily drift off from God into your own thing? Who knows what I mean with that? Yeah. <clears throat> when you're doing work with God and for God, it's very easy to end up, I'm just working for God, if that makes sense. The ability to do things is my strength and power. And Deuteronomy 8 verse 17 warns against this. And it warns against saying, as it's quoted here, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Wealth and gift and the capacity to work is a gift from God, not from ourselves. And so what I love about the story of Exodus, how they complained, how God provided miraculous provision. God says, this is not working. Let's build. In Genesis 1 and 2, it's the story how God created a universe for mankind. Exodus ends of how mankind created a home for God, if you like. Isn't that a beautiful partnership? Absolutely stunning. God made the universe a home for man, and man has the opportunity to make a home for God in this tabernacle, this tent of meeting. Profound, and we do that in our places of worship as we make a place for God to work. And so I want to encourage us, the testimony or the, the account of Genesis 1 is in six days, as we know, God made um, the universe. And on the sixth day, man was created, and on the seventh day, God rested. And so here's, on the seventh day, God and man enjoying communion together. And so this whole thing of work, what God is inviting us to work in, is to a thing that breathes. Six days, if you like, five, six days, we breathe with our work, we come together, and this is why I so enjoy coming together, to worship together, as we receive and give our praise and our adoration to God. And there's this thing, this rhythm of work and rest, work and rest, work and rest. And the key to it is, is understanding that we are co-creators with God. I'm not creating my role, my work, your work. is something that you don't do in your own strength. It's something that you do with God. And you co-create with Him, making the world a better place around you. It's got to be a good thing, isn't it? I love that thought that we are co-creating. Here is Caleb playing his instrument and singing, creating this wonderful environment which we together can worship, co-creating with God. You think about, <clears throat> and Martin Luther picked up on this thought. He was the one that really championed it um, with the whole thought of that, you know, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. What God is doing, he's just not saying, there it is, Jeff, there's a loaf of bread. He co-creates through humanity. There's a farmer who plants the seed. 
farmer who harvests, a truck who collects it, who takes it to the mill, who grinds the flour. There's a baker who bakes the bread. There's a supermarket who sells it. God is using humans to co-create for his provision for us. And when we do that with love, when we do that with a sense of God amongst us, God with us, God transforming our workplaces and our environments, something special happens. God is amongst us. God dwells amongst us through our work. And so I want to just lead on to this other question this morning, which follows this, is these people were instructed to build, and they did. So how do you build well? How do you work well? And we're going to turn briefly to uh, 1 Kings 4.29. Who enjoys somebody doing their work really well? Isn't it good? Somebody provides you great service. Somebody cooks you a lovely meal at a restaurant. Somebody serves you a really lovely coffee. I was at uh, Smith City yesterday buying a tub for um, a washing machine. And I went in there to the attendant all around the appliances, and here was this guy. And um, he was a younger guy, but he looked very confident and competent in what he was doing. And I was talking to him, and I was asking him all these questions. And he said something to me <clears throat> which really made me laugh. He said to me, you're asking many things. <laughs> this is true. You are asking many things. This is how I shall answer. And I was ready for this profound answer. That's a good question. <laughs> and I said, that's a good question. We both burst out laughing. He said, I'll go and get some help for you, which he did. But I think it's a good question to ask, how do we work? And um, let's go to 1 Kings 4.29. And, and it says, God gave Solomon very great wisdom and understanding and knowledge as vast as the sands of the seashore. So what had happened is that the tabernacle had been built in uh, the wilderness by the, the Israelites, and really the whole desire of, um, was to have the tabernacle become a permanent temple in Jerusalem. That was the desire. In fact, King David says he longed to build a temple for the Lord. But the Lord said, because you're a man of war, you can't do that. And so here it is in 1 Kings 6, 1. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, 480 years, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, he began to build the temple of the Lord. And so here is Solomon going, the temple had been a portable tent. Now we're going to make a permanent temple. Doesn't that sound a good thing, doing great things for God? Okay. It sounds really good, but there's some really important lessons for, for us to learn here because things didn't go too well. In the situation where we read about Moses, things went really well. People gave People labored. People were happy. But in this particular situation with King Solomon, it didn't go too well. And here's the thing. Solomon, King Solomon, is the wisest king 
the wisest person in the world. And one of the things as I was reading and studying this, you can have all the wisdom in the world, and that's one thing. But it's another thing to apply that wisdom, isn't it? And that's a challenge for all of us, and it certainly was a challenge for Solomon. And after King Solomon's death, this is the tragic thing that happened, the 12 tribes of Israel divided. The 10 tribes in the, in the north left Solomon's son Rehoboam under a divided kingdom. And it was a turning point in biblical history. And here's the thing, they were doing God's work and the outcome of it was disastrous. A real tragedy for the nation of Israel. And it's a very insightful if we can learn a little bit about the way that Solomon approached work. So let's, uh, if you've got your Bibles, 1 King 5, uh, 27 to 30. Um, <clears throat> Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon had, listen to this, 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hill, as well as 3,300 foremen who supervised the project and directed the workmen. That's a lot of guys doing a lot of work in the field, isn't it? 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stonecutters. That'd be pretty amazing, wouldn't it, Nelson? 80,000 stonecutters on the farm doing the fencing? Well, 3,300 foremen. That's something else, isn't it? That is a huge number of people. But this is what the Bible says. After Solomon's death, the people were very dissatisfied with him. And they say, <clears throat> the people sent Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Goes on, verse 7, If today you will be a servant to this people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. And so here's this um, envoy that comes to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and says, look, your father was pretty tough on us. If you lighten it up, we'll serve you forever. That's what the older elders were advising him to do. Uh, Rehoboam's younger uh, advisors said, ignore the advice. Your father wasn't hard on them. Make it twice as hard. And from that moment on, the fate was sealed. And something really strange happened here, which I want to point out to you. In 1 Kings 12, 4, it says, this is about Solomon, you put a heavy yoke on us. 480 years before, the Israelites said, the Lord said, I will bring you out of the yoke of the Egyptians. 1 Kings 12.3, now lighten the harsh labor. Exodus 1.14, in the time of Moses. But they made their lives bitter with harsh labor. And what the Bible is hinting at here is that Solomon, for all his wisdom, had constricted, or constructed forced labor, if you like, had become an Israelite Pharaoh. So here's the Israelites leaving Egypt to 
to find freedom and maturity through giving and of their work. And then under Solomon were worked so hard that they say we're going to leave. Now here's the thing. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I would imagine that would have raised a few eyebrows, a few tweet messages, a little bit of scandal. He also worshipped idols. But the people say, we're not leaving this kingdom because of your thousand wives. We're not leaving this kingdom because you even worship idols. We're leaving this kingdom because you treat us harshly. Now, the world's a very different place today. In fact, we're on the other end of the, the spectrum where people have it very, very easy compared to the way that it was in the time of Solomon. But the message out of Solomon and the way that we work and what God is really saying, God is saying, I'm a free God. I created the universe in freedom. I created humanity in my image to be free and through the creativity of working with me with work to create a place where I can dwell. And those that employ people, those that engage people, it's creating an environment where we can live and freely give and freely co-create to see God's presence come on earth. When that environment happens, this is what happens. A community comes rich because they care for the poor. A community comes strong because they care for the weak. And God is inviting us, 2018, is to step into a place of maturity and go, I'm co-creating with the giftedness that God has given to bring heaven to earth wherever I am. And we have this privilege, as Sheridan read out from John 6, 29, your work is to believe in me. When we come as free people, giving our worship and combining our faith, God is amongst us in community to build a place of belonging. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. To build belonging, we exalt Jesus. He draws all men close. When men are close, they belong to him and they belong to one another. That's the place that Jesus is inviting. It takes work. It takes faith. It takes responsibility. But praise God that we serve a God that wants us to grow and develop so we can represent him well as his ambassadors in this earth for his glory. I'm going to leave with one last story. Do you want to hear this? I was at the garage yesterday. I often go there to get petrol. And uh, I was talking to the attendant there, and um, I felt God's anointing all over me tell him about church, which I began to do. And he was quite open and quite responsive, and people were walking into the shop, so I thought, well, I, if I'm going to say something, I'm going to have to say it really quickly, because the conversation is going to just be over. And I felt to say this, and I've never said this to anybody before, I said, you should become a Christian. Now, how's that for being pretty out there involved? Do you know what I thought? I, said, I don't want to say that, Lord. I don't want to say that. But I said it to him. You should be a Christian. And, these, these, and he went like this. Hmm. Hmm. 
I was also hiring a trailer, so I thought, well, I'm going to come back. Now, that could be a good experience or it could be a bad experience. So came back and to give them the, um, the gear for the trailer. And I was thinking, shall I start this conversation off again or not? I thought, no, I won't. And he comes up, comes up to me and he says, can you tell me about your church, please? And I'm going, wow, God. The joy of co-creating opportunities with you is awesome. So I got his text number and I texted him. And we got a conversation going on. So please pray for it. His name is Nick. Pray for him. His name is Nick. So I want to encourage you, wherever you are, as you respond to the Spirit of God, you are co-creating for him. You are co-creating with Jesus. And the place where we start together is believing in him, knowing that we have a responsibility to bring heaven on earth and see our world change for good as God has manifested through us. That is good news, isn't it? Praise God for that. Thank you, church. I'm looking forward to an awesome 2018. I pray God bless and prosper your workplaces. As you go there tomorrow, see yourself as a co-creator with Jesus. See yourself as one who's bringing heaven to earth, a place where God can dwell right in your workplace, bringing his goodness there. Amen. God bless you. Thank you very much.